Hello friends, I'm Ashish Darbari, founder and CEO of Axiomize. To our new listeners, welcome and to our old ones, welcome back. And I'm very happy to say today I have in-house Daniel Zimmerman, a scientist working at Galva Incorporated. Hi Daniel, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Hey, thanks very much for coming in today, Daniel. Just start right away. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you actually end up in uh, Galva and what is your personal story? So I, um, so I grew up uh, in the late 70s and early 80s and I got interested in computers at a very young age. My first computer was a Commodore VIC-20 and I would program it by typing in programs from magazines. Um, and so I knew fairly early on that I really wanted to work with computers. Uh, but I had no idea that there was such a thing as computer science, <laughs> yes. right? Um, and it wasn't really until I got to university um, that I actually was exposed to sort of the mathematics and the scientific principles behind how these magical devices actually worked. Sure. And and then I knew I really wanted to work with that as opposed to just, you know, programming for a living. And uh, so I uh, did my undergraduate and graduate work at Caltech. Uh, and as an undergraduate, I was exposed to all sorts of interesting things, uh, hardware design, distributed systems, software design. Uh, I ended up focusing on distributed systems in grad school, but with a formal methods sort of bent uh, where I worked on, you know, how do we reason about distributed systems that can change over time? Uh, and then from there, uh, after, after grad school, I ended up teaching uh, at a couple different places for a while. I was at the University of Washington for a bit and Harvey Mudd College for a bit, uh, teaching software engineering and formal methods and uh, you know computer science theory. Uh, and then from there, uh, I learned about Galois, which is a whole company that is built around the ideas of formal methods and the application of formal methods to um, trustworthy computing, and I got hooked basically. So, so Dan, you had quite an incredible journey. So, you pursued computer science uh, right from the days of being a hobby to then having a university degree, then getting an interest in formal methods, but then you actually started teaching in university, which is great. And then you said you wanted to come out of the university environment back into Galva, which I believe is a research institution. Am I right? Yeah, Gawa is, um, we're mostly a research and development services company. So we do a lot of work on research projects for the U.S. government. Uh, we do work with commercial clients I on see. Mm -hmm. high assurance systems. Right. So we'll go into more details about what you guys are doing in Galwa, but why Galwa is called Galwa? What is the secret? <laughs> so... So Galois is named after the French mathematician Evariste Galois. Right. Uh, and 
he uh, did a number of pretty remarkable things during his short career, which mm-hmm. was you know cut short by an unfortunate duel. Uh, but he, uh, one of the things he did was to come up with the idea of Galois connections, mm-hmm. uh, which are used pervasively in our field. Um, and he also made fundamental contributions to cryptography, which was the area that Galois was started to address back in 2000, or sorry, 1999. Wow. No, very nice. Yeah, I certainly have heard of Calva. I've used Calva connections in my own work, but actually seeing that a whole organization exists as a tribute to Galva is awesome. So give me a high-level overview of the kind of activities you are engaged at Galva. So you're an R&D organization and you're also offering services work, and you mentioned that you offer this to private entities as well. But what is your main focus point? Are you looking to develop or are developing formal methods solutions for software or hardware or for everything? So, so when Yellow started, it was primarily about software uh, and, and even a bit more narrowly, primarily about cryptography. I see. Uh, over time, you know, as the company has grown and people with different interests have joined, We've broadened our our interests into different areas of software, uh, into hardware. I see. And so now, you know, essentially our goal is to advance the cause of trustworthy computing systems mm-hmm. broadly construed. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether whether that's trustworthy software, trustworthy hardware, um, hardware software co-design, uh, verification of existing things, Mm -hmm. development of new things. Um, You know, we do formal verification of commercial software, for example. I see. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you, uh, you, probably our most visible effort in that regard is the work that we've done for Amazon. I see. On their their S2N cryptography library, Uh where if you go to GitHub, mm-hmm. this is an open source thing that Amazon has, mm-hmm. and if you go to GitHub and you look, you will see that they actually run proofs of their code as integration tests, effectively, every I time see. You know, something is merged into the repository, and, and we help them develop those, basically. So have you been working with Daniel Cronings Group and Byron Cook? and so on, or is it a separate piece of work that's going on between Galway and Amazon? Uh, so I personally have not been involved in the Amazon work. I know that we have worked with both of those individuals. I, I see. So it's part of the same project, I it's, suppose. It's sort of part of the same mm-hmm. umbrella. Awesome. So let's talk about the ninja formal methods. What What is ninja formal methods? That's the first time I've heard this phrase. So, so it's actually secret ninja formal methods. Oh, secret! I see. Yeah. I missed the secret. The, the, <laughs> the secret part. The secret part is important because uh, so so secret ninja formal methods was a idea that uh, my colleague Joe Canary and I came up with back in around two thousand eight when we were both teaching um, undergraduates and graduate students uh, software engineering. I see. And the the idea is that. 
we know that we can make more reliable software systems by using formal methods and formal methods tools. But the learning curve to actually do those things is very high. Mm -hmm. And students, especially in, uh, you know, undergraduate early days where, you know, they want to learn how to build nifty software systems, but they don't really want to spend a lot of their time learning the math and the theory behind what makes a reliable software system. Mm -hmm. So secret ninja formal methods is the idea that we can take the power of formal methods and package it up in ways that allow non-experts to use it without having to know that it's there. Right. Just to see the value of it without actually making them do the work in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> so, so we have, um, you know, principles for how to make, in this case, software sort of verifiable more easily. Mm -hmm. Different different design patterns and ways of mm -hmm. building things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we teach people those and we show them that, you know, if you do these things and you're using, you know, the, the big inter integrated development environment that we've supplied you with at the beginning of the semester, for instance, mm -hmm. um, then you basically get continuous feedback about how good your software is. Right. And, you know, not just here are bugs that appear on these lines of code, but also here are things that are logically wrong mm -hmm. with your, right? It doesn't satisfy this particular condition. Uh, and so the idea then is essentially hiding the math mm -hmm. inside user-friendly tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that people who know how to program or know how to design things and are used to working in IDEs mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, the like, can pick them up and use them mm -hmm. without having to be formal methods experts. And this is a great way, you know, because um, otherwise they're used to testing. Everybody knows that you have to test a program, whether they're writing a bubble sort program or they're building a chip. Everybody knows they have to do testing. But um, to try and make them see that there is another way of looking at verification <laughs> via a proof-centric approach, this is a great idea. In fact, one um, thing that I find common with how we are approaching this in the context of RISC-5 is through an app which we give to the users uh, to use it without them needing to know any formal methods necessarily. So this is a great idea. So is the secret... Now the secret is out. Secret Ninja <laughs> formal methods. Is it actually constantly deployed in your environments at Galva? By is it something is still so, pervasively used? So we use in some of our projects. We definitely use this methodology. Um, it's less a specific set of tools and more a methodology, right? Because Secret Ninja mm -hmm. formal methods for hardware is going to look a lot different than secret ninja formal methods Correct. for Java Correct. or for Rust Correct. or for C. Correct. Um, and so so we do use this methodology, at least on the projects that I have been involved with. Um, and, you know, we do know that other people use it for teaching and mm -hmm. in various other places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one that you mentioned that was interesting was testing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this helps with testing too. Correct. Because, because you know, typically in a, in a testing 
environment, you're going to be handwriting a bunch of tests and you're obviously going to miss things. Of course. But, but in an environment where you have these sorts of specifications of your code, mm -hmm. a lot of the tests that you were written, you would have written by hand can just be generated for you. Right. Right. And and so we do that too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you press a button and now you actually have a full test suite for mm -hmm. your program mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that you that you didn't have to lift a finger to write. Yeah, I other than pressing that button. I can totally <laughs> believe that. So in fact a lot of the work you're doing at Galva is in building tools, isn't it? Whether it's for software or for hardware verification. But the whole program is build tools. And are these tools I mean, presumably you're selling these tools, you know, with the licensing model uh, to your customers. And how, how are they compared to those tools being sold by the commercial EDA vendors, Cadence, Metrographics, um, well, they call Siemens now, uh, Synopsys, OneSpin? So, so I will say most of our projects do end up involving the development of some tooling. Mm -hmm. And Galois has several sort of... Uh, flagship tools that, that we have been developing since our inception. Um, one of those is called Cryptol. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cryptol was originally developed as a domain-specific language for cryptography. Right. Where, um, you know, it was, it was Galois' first um, project, basically, and it, it is our most mature tool. Mm -hmm. um, but it's evolved over time, so it's not just a language. So it so it's a functional language. It looks um, right, yeah, it, like many other functional mm -hmm. languages uh, for specifying cryptographic algorithms. Uh, but it also has you know a strong type system mm -hmm. that helps you get everything correct. Mm -hmm. It also has uh, you know a built-in randomized tester to do fuzz testing and the like. Right. It also has interfaces to automated solvers for proving theorems about your cryptographic algorithms. So let me just briefly stop you. So you think so, so this this kind of a tool is not made by the commercial EDA vendors, right? So no. are, are you deliberately keeping a differentiation in Galvas to not actively compete with the vendors? Or what's the plan? So so the other thing that I'll say is that Cryptol and, and its accompanying tools when they were developed, were developed primarily for the purposes of software specification and software verification. Right. Um, we've recently started using them more for hardware-related projects. Uh, and you're right, they are very different than the sorts of things that are offered by the big three EDA mm -hmm. tool vendors. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is probably to our benefit to keep them different <laughs> because, very honestly, they have resources that we do not right mm -hmm. we we develop these tools um, in the service of whatever research we're doing for our clients mm -hmm. uh, and most of them are open source i see right cryptol is open source um saw which is the software analysis workbench um which is essentially our uh it's our main verification tool and allows us to do things like equivalence checking between cryptol specifications and programs in C or other high-level languages um, or LLVM bytecode. Um, you know, these things are open source. 
Okay. And, mm-hmm. and we make them available to whoever wants to use them. On the hardware side, you know, we're still developing our capabilities in this regard. Right. So mm-hmm. you know, one thing that I'm hoping that we'll be able to do in the not too distant future is prove the equivalence directly between cryptol specifications and system Verilog RTL. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not clear exactly what we're going to do in terms of a licensing model for that sort of capability sure. because mm-hmm. the hardware space is a bit different than the software space in that regard. Sure. And actually the solver technology under the hood, especially with SMT solvers, looks very different. If you were Indeed. looking to do word level <laughs> word level solving for hardware, I don't know if the SMT solvers are ready for that kind of analysis for hardware. I think for software, they're much better suited. Um, or at least that used to be the case some years ago. So tell me a little bit more about Cryptol. Is this the thing that you deployed at the Amazon project? So so Cryptol is definitely one of the tools that we used uh, with with Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also used SAW, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. yeah. Software Analysis Workbench. Right. Um, so... I'm not sure what, what do you want so, to know though. So so what I wanted to know was that, you know, supposing you have um, a software house that is designing some software, presumably with some hardware that they may or may not mm-hmm. own. I mean, should they come and talk to you and look at your solutions? I mean, is there a prescribed flow that you uh, suggest to your customers who are new to using formal or formal-based flows? Um well, I would definitely encourage them to come talk to us about it. We're, we're always happy to talk to people about how to best improve the assurance stories around mm-hmm. their software and their hardware, mm-hmm. or both at the same time. Right. Um, there are, of course, things like tutorials. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as with any tooling that people make available, we have tutorials for how to get started with Cryptol and how to get started with SAW. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been working more recently on sort of teaching materials related to these things right. that, that will eventually be available in some public way. I see. Okay, that sounds good. That sounds good. So what I was actually looking to find out was, you know, I was reading up some of your stuff and there was an example you gave about... Um, what happens when random number generation goes wrong? And I think you, do you want to share a bit about that? Because um, there's a lot of random number generation going on in UVM test bench environments, uh, automatically done. Um, you know, I wouldn't say totally automatically done, but you know, it's, it's done for simulation purposes. So what's the big deal about random number generation? So, so I think, so random number generation, is essential to many cryptographic algorithms mm-hmm. security mm-hmm. right in, yeah. in in terms of you know, generating keys mm-hmm. if you have a bad source of randomness then mm-hmm. somebody can reverse engineer how you generated your keys mm-hmm. and then break all of your cryptography even mm-hmm. if you even if your cryptographic circuits are perfect even if you're using everything correctly um, you know, if you if you don't have good random number generation, then 
you're going to be using weak keys, basically. And uh -huh. all of the perfect cryptography in the world isn't going to help you. Um, that actually is an area where Cryptol and Saw, um, you know, can help. But, you know, true random number generation is the kind of thing that really ends up having to be done in hardware mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, various methods of, of having randomness mm -hmm. in physical hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and for that, I think, you know, formal verification of that is, is not something that we've really done a lot of work on. Um, but some of the ways that random number generation has failed in practice in the real world are definitely things that you could catch mm -hmm. with, with verification tools. Um, probably my favorite example mm -hmm. is, is back when Sony released the PlayStation 3. Mm -hmm. They had this, you know, really high standard cryptographic ecosystem around it for signing software distributions and, um, you know, making sure that nobody could install unauthorized software on their consoles. And it turns out that the random numbers that they were using for signing key generation actually weren't random. I see. It, it turned out that they were using fixed numbers. And so once somebody reverse engineered what those fixed numbers were, they were able to just distribute arbitrary software. And, and Sony couldn't plug that hole because, you know, it was already out there in the world. They couldn't change their whole cryptographic scheme. They would break millions of consoles. And this would affect so, everything that runs around, you know, our... Um you know, satellite TV subscriptions, I mean, pretty much, the, mm -hmm. you know, Netflix subscriptions, whatnot. And what you're saying is you guys have been working on some solutions, if not all the solutions that we need. Well, I, yeah, I would say that the things we've been working on, so, you know, if you were to run verification tools on the software that generated those bad Sony random numbers, mm -hmm. you would pretty quickly find out that they weren't random. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I don't, that's not, that particular issue isn't one that we've spent a lot of time looking at explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, things that we have spent more time on is, uh, you know, are the actual cryptographic primitives and protocols implemented mm -hmm. properly? Right. Because a lot of mistakes get happen. A lot of mistakes get made there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, good cryptography is hard, which is why it's pretty universally suggested that people not implement their own. Yeah. So this <laughs> but, one, but is somebody a, has to. Yeah. I mean, one is the protocol aspect, and the other is, as you said, the random number generation side, where coming up with a formal proof that a given software's random number generation algorithm is robust, I think would be very difficult. Um, it, it would be. But at least you can find holes and you can find bugs and defects. That's something that is possible today with the technology you're building. That's quite useful to know um, because, you know, we can't solve all the world's problems. We've got to solve the ones that we can. <laughs> right. So, now, now the ones that we can solve that we have done in previous projects are things like how do you go directly from a mathematical specification of a cryptographic primitive to hardware to right. a circuit? Nice. Um, uh -huh. And so we have, you know, we have a tool flow that goes from Cryptol 
to actually system Verilog. I see. Um, that that we can use to generate correct by construction mm-hmm. sort of golden models right. for circuits that you would then implement on actual chips. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can have very high assurance that your cryptographic circuits are correct. Right. Um, you know, of course, if you feed bad data into them, like bad keys and bad randomness, you're still going to get bad data out. But but you've eliminated at least one possible. How problem. would we How would we ensure that the compiler is correct? The ones that spit out system Verilog from Cryptol. So that is actually a good question. Um, right now, we have done that by checking the resulting system Verilog against sort of reference models that mm-hmm. are known to be correct. Mm-hmm. Um, in the future, we're hoping to actually be able to use our equivalence checking tools to check the system Verilog directly against the cryptol that it came from mm-hmm. so that you don't have to actually trust the compiler mm-hmm. as, long as, as long as you can prove the correctness of what came out of it. Um, developing an actual verified compiler from Cryptol to that would be hardware hard. would be would be very hard. That would be hard. I mean, you could do that in a, in a theorem prover, but that is not what I was after. What I was thinking you could do, I don't know if you do already, is to extract human readable specifications from Cryptol models and turn them into assertions that could be exercised as protocol checks on your system verilog design model. That way you get a nice sanity check uh, to see if the certain sanity properties are not failing on your extracted code. Um, Indeed, that's that's also something that we've considered doing and I would love to get the opportunity to do as part of one of our upcoming projects. I mean, this is the, this is the main problem, isn't it? When we are doing high level synthesis, and this is an example of a high level synthesis in that sense, mm-hmm. uh, people think of system C, but this is a classic example of high level synthesis. And we're always wondering, you know, <laughs> now we trust the compiler. Okay, we are more willing to trust the compiler than the human beings, uh, but mm-hmm. the compilers can have bugs too. No, but that's very interesting to know. Okay, Dan, so tell me a little bit more about some of the hardware projects that you're working on. So so at Gawa, as I mentioned, we kind of pivoted a little bit into hardware several years ago. Um, and mostly we've been doing projects in hardware cryptography as you know, true to our roots. Uh, one of those, um, the, the first one that we did was called Gulpak which uh, stands for Galois Ultra Low Power High Assurance Asynchronous Cryptography. Um, One of the other things that we do is asynchronous logic and and, uh, the combination of that and uh, correct by construction is pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, In in that case, we we implemented a number of different uh, cryptographic primitives, um, taped out an ASIC, um, used Cryptol to actually do the high-level specification of the cryptography and uh, compiled it down to System Verilog um, and got really good results in terms of not just the uh, correctness, mm-hmm. but also the performance that we ended up getting out of it and right. the power utilization. Right. Um, coming out of that, we did 
a project uh, which we just recently got the chips back for, mm-hmm. and haven't had a chance to analyze yet, called 21st Century Cryptography, mm-hmm. uh, where we did some more correct by construction cryptographic accelerators, in particular for uh, AES-256 and uh, SHA. Right. And in this case, not only did we synthesize them from Cryptol, but we also did some interesting side channel resistance things on the chip nice. to, try okay. to, mm-hmm. to try to see how we could leverage asynchronous design to improve security um, in addition to improving power and right. performance. I see. And that is ongoing work or is it completed work? So that work is mostly completed, but the analysis of the chips is ongoing. Right. So, you, you know, we, we've done simulations and the like that tell us certain things that we think we can expect mm-hmm. about the side channel resistance of the chips we get back. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just have to see how that actually turns out in silicon. Um, and then we just started a project about a month ago, uh, which is called Basilisk. Uh-huh. And that project is to develop a hardware accelerator to accelerate fully homomorphic encryption. I see. I am not sure if that's a term you or your listeners are familiar with. I was with. just going to ask you, <laughs> what would that mean? So, In more simple so, terms. <laughs> so, so, so put simply, uh, fully homomorphic encryption basically is computation on encrypted data. Mm-hmm. The idea is if you wanted to do um, some really high-powered computation on a data set, so maybe you want to do it in the cloud, in somebody's cloud environment, but you don't trust them with the data, right? What you can do uh, if you had a solution for fully homomorphic encryption at speed is you could encrypt the data before sending it up to the cloud, Mm -hmm. send it up to the cloud, do whatever computations and processing needed to be done on it while leaving it encrypted the entire time mm-hmm. and then download the results and decrypt them. Wow. So, sounds, so essentially, that sounds you don't impossible. have to worry. Yeah, sounds impossible. About, <laughs> well, it's, it's not impossible, but it's very, very hard. Right. Um, so typically... Um, you know, fully homomorphic encryptions that solutions that exist today are mostly in software. And there are some FPGA accelerated things that are in research labs. Uh, but they are many orders of magnitude slower than just computing on unencrypted data. And so it's not really practical to right. do these computations at scale. Right. The goal of mm-hmm. this project is to develop a hardware accelerator that will bring the execution time of these things down to within a factor of 10 of computing on unencrypted data so that, you know, it'll be a bit slow, but quite practical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Sounds really, really nice and quite novel. Um... Yeah, it's an exciting project where that project is for DARPA uh, as part of uh, a program that they have called Data Protection in Virtual Environments. I see, I and, see. Uh, and we're really excited about it. Yeah, so that really sounds uh, quite exciting and out of the world. Hey, we've already spent um, half an hour talking and I didn't realize the clock was ticking. Um, we've covered a lot of ground today, Dan, and I think we should do some deep dive again in a follow-on chat. 
but I would like to wrap up for today in the interest of time. I know you're quite busy, but one thing I want to ask you before I let you go, you know, we have um, a lot of listeners who are um, in 20s and 30s age group, uh, so I'd say relatively young career professionals and students. And I'm always asking my guests um, to give us a few tips uh, for students around the world. If they were looking to pursue a career in formal methods, uh, I know that Secret Ninja would be one way of going about it. Um, but tell me in your view, having taught in universities before and working in uh, corporate environments, what would be some of the tips that you would like to give? So, so first I'll say, I would certainly be happy to come back and do a deep dive on any of these. Let's do that, yeah. Point. We should definitely do that. Um, as far as a career in formal methods, I think um, partially that depends on, on what we mean when we say that in terms of using formal methods and trying to um, you know, improve whatever it is that we're doing by, by leveraging the power of these things. Um, I think that there is a lot of very approachable tooling out there these days, right? Even, even things like SMT solvers, um, you know, that used to be much more difficult to use than they are now. Um, you know, if you're interested in learning about how these things work, it's fairly straightforward to just grab one off the internet, right? Grab a copy of C3 and work through some examples mm -hmm. and just, you know, get a sense for what these tools can do, what they can't do. Um, you know, for people who are interested in working behind the scenes and improving the state of the art, um, you know, clearly uh, a lot of the mathematical experience is going to be necessary. Um, but pretty much every university now has courses related to these things. Mm -hmm. So, so I would think, um, you know, just exploring, you know, you take, take a tool or a concept that, that resonates with you and, you know, download it, play with it, look at its source code. If it's open source, most mm -hmm. of them are, because this is a very sort of open and welcoming community. Mm -hmm. Um, and talk to people, uh, you know, those of us who have been thinking about this stuff and working with this stuff for a long time are, I think on the whole, really excited about the fact that the use of formal methods in industry has been accelerating rapidly over the last, Indeed. even just the last three or four years. Yep. You know, with with com companies like Amazon doing formal methods in the open on their some of their higher profile software tools, mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of opportunity out there, uh, and and I think uh, we tend to be pretty approachable people. Cool. I think what you're saying is get your hands dirty, go out there on the GitHub, grab the tools. And, yes, absolutely. And talk to people, which is, I think, is quite reasonable. Um, awesome. Yeah. So, and if, yeah. If, if, if this is an area that you're interested in, you know, we do internships at Galois. We're always, well, we're always ready to, you know, have people come and work with us. 
as well. Of course. So that's good. I mean, I presume you're mm-hmm. based in Oregon. So you're, are you a U.S.-based entity only or are you spread around the world? So we are a U.S.-based entity only. We have three offices. Um, our largest is in Portland. Right. Uh, we also have offices in Arlington, Virginia, and Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, although right now, because of obviously the sure. COVID-19 situation, yeah. everybody is remote. Working from home, yeah. <laughs> so, well, anyway, so you have U.S. work rights and you're interested in pursuing a career in what I certainly believe is one of the best disciplines um, it's the most happening thing, then, yeah, get in touch with Galva and um, w- work on all of these exciting projects that Dan was talking to us about. Hey, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking time off. I know you've been very busy. We were trying to schedule this for a couple of months, uh, but I'm glad we could, we could find time to talk about it. And I'm looking forward to welcoming you back, Dan. I'm looking forward to that as well. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. So friends, I hope you liked today's chat. If you certainly are feeling as inspired as I am, then get in touch with us at info at maximize.com. Look up Dan Zimmerman's work at Galwa. And yeah, talk to us. As Dan said, we are lovely people and we are very approachable people. And with that, we'll wish you well and we'll be back shortly.